Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. As Vladimir Putin continues to mass troops on the Ukrainian border, and as Russia and Belarus prepare for a fresh round of military exercises, fears of war in Eastern Europe are very real and palpable. And Putin is trying to leverage this crisis that he's manufactured to get what he's always wanted, Western acquiescence for a sphere of influence, which is just a polite way of saying imperial dominance over the former Soviet space. This year marks the centenary of the founding of the Soviet Union in 1922, and it appears that Putin intends to mark this anniversary by trying to put some of the old empire back together again. So how far will he go? And what can a divided and distracted West do to stop him? I've got two awesome guests who have a lot of relevant things to say about that, so please stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from his snowballing farm in southern Estonia is somebody I've wanted to get on the podcast forever. Thomas Hendrik Ilvis served as, as president of Estonia for two terms from 2006 to 2016. He's also served as Estonian foreign minister, ambassador to the United States, and as a member of the Estonian and European parliaments. These days, Thomas is a visiting professor at Tartu University and serves as a member of the Munich Security Conference's advisory board. Welcome to the podcast, President Ilvis. I've long wanted to have you on. Great to be here. Great to have you. And joining us from sunny Miami, Florida, is one of my favorite regular guests. David Kramer serves as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. He's also been president of Freedom House and he's senior director at the McCain Institute. These days, Dave is a senior fellow and lecturer at the Florida International University Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. Welcome back to the podcast, David. Thanks very much. Happy New Year, Brian. Thank you. Happy New Year to everybody. So over the years, we have all seen instances of Russian saber rattling, psyops and active measures. But the current crisis seems to me to be very, very different. In addition to the troop buildup and fears of a reinvasion of Ukraine, there is the ongoing militarization of Belarus and even suggestions from top Russian officials, including Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov and Deputy Foreign Minister Andrei Rudenko, that nuclear weapons could be stationed there. And of course, there were those demands from Moscow that NATO agreed to no additional Eastern enlargement, seize all military cooperation with Ukraine and other post-Soviet states, and pledge not to station troops or weapons at Eastern European countries that joined the alliance after May 1997. Those demands, of course, have been dismissed out of hand. It seems that Putin's message is loud and clear, though either acquiesce to my demands for dominance over Ukraine and other former Soviet states, or I will take back the empire by force. Thomas, David, how do you assess the current situation? Thomas, why don't you go first since you're actually in the region? Well, I think that actually to quote Corey Shockey on this, I think that uh, Putin has forsaken all ideas uh, of a European Russia and rather 
gone whole hog on becoming uh, an Asiatic despotism uh, of might makes right and international laws and rules that have basically kept the peace ever since World War II do not apply to him. This was actually probably true as of 2014. But I mean, there is this bizarre demand for written guarantees of something from the country that signed off on the Budapest Memorandum guaranteeing in perpetuity Ukrainian <laughs> independence and territorial integrity. But I, I think we're seeing this uh, downward slide with Putin's actions toward its neighbors. I mean, coupling that with. Uh, an ever nastier crackdown on domestic opinion. He's abandoned all pretense, as I said, to being anything but really like a classic medieval despot. Do you, I mean, you've dealt with, as president of Estonia, you of course had the, the pleasure of dealing with Putin, uh, your neighbor. Does this feel different to you? Because it feels different to me. It feels like this is not just the the normal kind of extortion. This doesn't seem transactional. Putin. Yeah, appeal, well, that's uh, what I was trying to get at. Before, there was some kind of attempt to be a serious interlocutor. Whereas now it's, well, instead of using the medieval despot, Motif, you could just say, you know, a mafioso boss. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I have, I have on here in my books, which are either about cyber or about Russia. Uh, the the Russia part, uh, probably the best book on the topic is this. <laughs> and for those who cannot see that, President Ilves is holding up Mario Puzo's classic book, The Godfather. And that reminds me, but way back in the 1980s, when I was a student, a very wise professor told me if I want to really understand politics, uh, throw away my textbook and read The Godfather. I now tell my students to watch Goodfellas, actually, because that is advice I have taken. David, let's get you in here. How do you, do you see this as fundamentally different in a qualitative sense as I do? Uh, I think it is different. It's different even than last spring, uh, spring of 2021, when we saw a buildup of Russian forces along the border with Ukraine. This seems more threatening. It seems more serious. And Russian requirements and demands are getting more brazen. So uh, I, do, I do think this is different. And I would put higher odds on uh, Putin actually moving ahead and doing something on a serious scale this time than I would have last spring. I still think there's a 50-50 chance about a, a major military move here. I think more likely is something in the cyber realm where we could see a pretty crippling cyber attack against Ukraine. It wouldn't be the first time the NotPetya attack was a serious one. And Tom, of course, sitting in Estonia, remembers 2007 when Estonia was really the first main victim of a Russian cyber attack. And uh, I do think it is a, a more serious and, and threatening time right now. I think Kazakhstan and the developments there have added a, an additional element where Putin may have to think twice before doing something in Ukraine if he winds up getting bogged down in Kazakhstan. And I think that is a possibility. So it's a mess, but there is a common theme that I think has been consistent for years. And that is Putin's uncanny ability to alienate his neighbors, to instill fear in his neighbors, to want them to join 
organizations that provide security guarantees. He took a country, Belarus, where the population was at worst neutral, if not even to some degree positive toward Russia and turned most of the population against Russia. He runs the risk of doing the same thing in Kazakhstan. And of course, support in Ukraine for joining NATO before 2014 was in the low to mid-teens, mm-hmm. and now it's at around 60%. So he has an, uh, an uncanny ability of pushing away the countries and people closest to him. And that's because, as Tom said, he acts like a thug. He acts like a kleptocratic authoritarian leader. And it's not surprising that those closest to him are get a little nervous. I mean, here, just to continue on the cyber side, I mean, he has twice threatened, quote, technical slash military operations against Ukraine. And so when you're saying, when you say, I mean, what is a technical operation? Well, that is, I mean, that can only be understood as a cyber attack. Given the, given how Russia's success, earlier success in, uh, say, shutting down regions of Ukraine, that debilitating cyber attacks, I mean, if you cut out the electricity, the internet of a country, You've fairly well isolated it. I mean, we experienced here, just so for those who don't recall, back uh, 14 years, I mean, our our internet was basically shut down by the Russians in an attack that at the time was unprecedented. In fact, the first time you'd ever seen this kind of attack, yet it is in contrast to what we have seen subsequently rather minor. So, I mean, I think that that's the first thing we should be looking for. now. What I would like to see is what the hell are we going to do here on our side? Because expressions of grave concern are not really, at this point, the appropriate way to proceed. I mean, now what we see is a a wailing and gnashing of teeth on the part of Western Europe, quote, having been left out of the discussion, which I find, I regret that Western all of Europe is left out of the discussion. But what we're seeing now is that France and Germany get to experience the feelings we had when you had the Minsk discussions with only Russia, Germany, and France and Ukraine. But I mean, this is not a, uh, we don't have a real good collective Western response to what's going on. The news that Olaf Scholz is now going to Moscow for a bilateral amidst all of what we see, and his statement that Nord Stream 2 is simply a commercial agreement when one side of it, I mean, this is an old Schroeder line. It's just between two private entities when, in fact, Nord Stream, the so-called company and its uh, parent company, Gazprom, is a wholly owned state-owned enterprise of Russia. We can ponder what Putin is going to do, but I think where we have some kind of agency is here amongst ourselves, within NATO, within the European Union. And I want to see some really serious attempts on the part of both to do something. I do want to drill down on those points with both of you in, in a moment about just the disunity in Europe and, and the, the, the disunity we're seeing in America about how to deal with this at the moment. But first, I wanted to pick up on a couple of things you each said. And Thomas, I wanted to pick up on your, your comment about cyber. And I, I agree cyber is something we should be watching for. But we should also be mindful of the fact that cyber is often a prelude to kinetic action. 
the invasion of Georgia was preceded by a cyber attack. The armed intervention in Ukraine was preceded by a cyber attack. And indeed, the 2007 cyber attack against Estonia set up a basically action on the ground when these Nashi thugs were bust into Estonia to pose as outraged ethnic Russians in Estonia about the moving of the, of the bronze soldier. So I think with cyber, we should be also looking at that as a prelude to kinetic action. The other point David raises is that Putin is indeed losing populations among his neighbors. He lost the Ukrainian population a long time ago. He's losing the Belarusian population. And I would suspect a similar thing would happen in Kazakhstan. But as he is doing that, he is gaining control to a degree. He has gained control of Belarus. He's threatening to, to gain control of, of Ukraine through military action. And the Kazakhstan situation is still playing out. We'll see how that works out. But as I mentioned in the intro, and I didn't just do this for symbolic reasons, this year marks the centenary of the Soviet founding of the Soviet Union. Putin is very, very, very cognizant of symbolism and anniversaries. And this has led me to like have my eyes wide open this year. I can imagine him, you know, dreaming about reestablishing the Soviet Union on the centenary of its initial birth in 1922. And I was wondering about before we drill into the disunity in the United States and in Europe, I'd like kind of to to, to react to that. Is this is this year significant for that reason? Well, you've seen with Putin an obsession with anniversaries. Yes. I mean, I mean, this is just kind of, I mean, be it on the one hand, you know, the killing of. Um, Politskaya and Politkovskaya, yeah. uh, on his birthday. On his birthday. And the, I mean, it's the really grotesque bombing of a Ukrainian town called New York mm-hmm. on September 11th. Yep. On the I mean, this is just this crude, primitive, uh, I don't know what, but it's it's just obnoxious. And so I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised uh, were he to do so, though, I mean, tempering that is he does want, I mean, he wants to re regather the Russian lands, as it were. On the other hand, I mean, the Soviet Union is not something that is really for anyone to be really proud of, I, I would say. The other thing, of course, is that, yeah, I mean, I think he's operating under one illusion, which is that territorial conquest will give him automatically or nearly automatically the kind of control he has established over the Russian Federation in which any kind of dissidence or or difference in opinion is quickly snuffed out by the FSB. It's a whole different ballgame to run an occupation. And I mean, it's one thing to do to do something in, say, Chechnya, uh, and it's one thing to say to bomb Grozny to, uh, to into ruins. It's quite another thing to start doing the same thing to Kiev or Kharkiv or Odessa. And we've discussed on this program in the past the difficulty Russia is going to have with holding Ukrainian territory after they presumably have taken it, if they indeed do want to go all the way up to the Dnieper River and take all of left bank Ukraine. David, I wanted to get you in on this, actually. Do, do, do you do you feel the Soviet anniversary is, is of significance and there should be heightened vigilance as a result of it? A, a little bit. But look, I think there is a disconnect here. 
um, Putin's main interest is in destabilizing his neighbors that are moving in a more democratic, Western-oriented direction. In that sense, I'm not sure he wants responsibility for running them, for actually being responsible for what happens on the territory in those countries. At the same time, he wants the West to stay out. And so, uh, in my view, his interest is in making sure that Ukraine doesn't succeed as a vibrant, market-oriented, democratic country moving toward the West. Same with Belarus, same with Georgia, Moldova, the list goes on and on. And yet, I don't know that he wants the burden of running these places. Crimea has proven to be rather expensive for him. Yes, I know Russia has, uh, what, 600 some odd billion dollars in foreign currency reserves. He, I think, is a much more destructive person than constructive person. And to take on responsibility after you've basically wiped things out is not the best thing to do when your own country is actually not doing all that well. Yeah, although I'm not sure how this looks from Putin's perspective. I mean, Putin sees himself as somebody who is going to restore Russia's imperial greatness, and empires can take on different forms. They can take on the kind of classical form of the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. They can also take on these very postmodern forms that we're seeing in Putin's attempts to achieve dominance over the former Soviet space. But I don't they think can also trigger popular uh, They could, they could, and they're um, likely and to in And whether they succeed or not is a different matter, but you look at what's happened in Ukraine. Ukraine twice in a decade. You look at Belarus, you look at Georgia, Kyrgyzstan's in a slightly different category. But now what you're seeing unfold in Kazakhstan, I mean, these leaders think they can put a lid on things. Armenia, yep, they can put a lid on things and they seem stable until they're not. Yeah, point taken. I did want to, before we go into European and American disunity, talk about the effect of this crisis on NATO's frontline stage. This is for you, Thomas, because basically this has a direct and very real uh, impact on the security of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, as they are right on the doorstep of where all this action is taking place. Russia's rapid militarization of Belarus, which is something I think I harp on this all the time because I think not enough attention is paid to it, Um, but we are basically seeing Belarus turned into, for military purposes, an extension of Russia. And that has serious, serious security implications for Poland, for Lithuania, and for all of the Baltic states because it increases the the, the Russian ability to close down the Savalki Gap, or as our friend General Ben Hodges insists, we call it the Savalki Corridor because we want to keep it open, which would cut the Balts off from NATO. Thomas, how I was the I, inventor of the term. I oh, you think. invented that? I thought I thought General Hodges invented that. That's no, great. no, no, <laughs> of the Savalki Gap. He changed it later. I can send you an article on how. It oh, was- uh-huh. I didn't realize that. But I mean, do you? How is this crisis viewed from where you're sitting? I mean, I I'm not going to say are Estonians getting nervous because Estonians never get nervous. They just calmly deal with the situation. But what's the vibe in the front line right now? Well, I would say the most significant development here is actually not in the four countries you mentioned, but far, far more interesting and potentially game changer was the Finnish president's mm-hmm. speech uh, on New Year's Day here, changing the, the options completely in the region, talking about Finland having to, I mean, possibly reconsidering its refusal to join NATO. And right now, at this very moment, the uh, Finns and the Swedes are consulting in what mm-hmm. the Swedes call a crisis meeting. I don't know what that means. But if you imagine... Those two countries joining NATO, it completely destroys all of the anxiety about, quote, strategic depth, 
The Baltic Sea becomes at that moment a NATO lake. Mm -hmm. And from there on in, we're talking about altogether different kinds of security architectures in the region. Now, the reason I mentioned that is that the Finnish response, unlike Western reporters who don't follow these things, unfortunately, was not just what's going on in Ukraine, but a really brutal, typically, you know, new age Russia threat made on December 26th to Finland and Sweden about how they would really regret ever joining NATO. But it was done in such a crude, brutal way that I think the the Finns at least got quite quite nervous about that. I mean, given that, in, especially in the context of the crudity of Russian rhetoric regarding Ukraine and toward NATO itself. And so there is this potential there, and I, I want to raise one issue here as well, is that I mean, traditionally what uh, Finnish politicians, I mean, same is true of Sweden, but I just follow Finland more, says that, well, only 25% wants to join NATO of the population. What they fail to mention always when they do that is that in those polls, there's always a second question. Would you join NATO if your leadership thinks it's a good idea? And then you're up in the mid to mm. upper 50s. Interesting. So, in fact, joining NATO, if the president of Finland and the prime minister, both of which have said this is a distinct possibility, come out and say, we think for Finnish security, we should join NATO, then it will, in fact, enjoy a fair bit of support in the population. And so Russia is really, with fails to understand that it's these threats, this boorish, obnoxious, mafioso behavior of theirs does have consequences. When the uh, godfather starts threatening too much, people call the uh, untouchables. <laughs> that is that is a wonderful metaphor. No, and I would agree with you, Thomas, that the if Finland and Sweden, it's still a big if, but if Finland and Sweden move into NATO, that does change the game. Because then all the concerns about the Baltics being cut off uh, through the closing of the Savalki Corridor are kind of, if not off the table, greatly diminished. And this would truly, truly be a game changer. And God, I know we got Finnish and Swedish listeners out there. I, I, I hope you're I hope you're really taking this seriously. David, any thoughts on this? It just underscores how Putin turns countries away from Russia. They seek safety and haven from your Atlantic institutions that provide cover and support. And so the, the very scenarios that Putin thinks he's trying to prevent are in fact the ones that are unfolding. And it's because of the way he behaves. It's not in Russia's national interest to alienate these countries along Russia's borders. But it does seem to be in Putin's interest, Putin's interest to yeah. alienate these countries and to destabilize them. And when I referenced before that I find Putin is more destructive than constructive, I actually think that makes him even more dangerous. If he was looking to reconstruct the Soviet Union, that would be a danger and a major concern, of course. But at least he wouldn't be trying to destroy these places. I think the way he approaches things now is he actually does try to destroy them. He tries to kill people. And, and, and unfortunately, in many cases, he has succeeded. And so that, I think, actually makes him a more dangerous person to deal with. And it just underscores how seeking predictability and stability, as the Biden administration uh, right. has talked about before, is really um, misguided and pointless. Putin doesn't think in those terms. Yeah, no, 
line, I do want to dive into the administration's approach in, in, in the second half. But to your point about Putin destroying these places, actually, in preparing for this program, I kind of did some reading, a, a little bit of reading about the the last time the Soviet Union was established, right? Um, how this went, uh, this this happened in the you know the late teens and the early twenties, up to the the formal you know creation of the Soviet Union in December of 1922, and there was some destruction before initially Ukraine, Belarus, and what was then called the Transcaucus Republics were brought into the in, into the Soviet Union in December of 22. The destruction precedes the annexation, if you will. I don't think these two things are necessarily mutually exclusive. What I the only thing, Brian, though, is keep in mind that in, in 22, they were coming off a devastating World War One. Yep. Um, now, they, these countries have experienced freedom uh, yep. to varying degrees. Belarus hasn't really really since 94, um, but they have tasted independence, they have tasted freedom, and it's a very different mindset in these countries, and it will make it much harder, particularly if on top of getting, experiencing those things, Russia now is trying to put it all back in the box. Yeah. It, it ain't gonna work. No, I, I agree with you. And additionally, though all of these countries have experienced 30 years of independence, which means an entire exactly. generation has grown up it, with no knowledge, with no experience of the Soviet Union, and and, and wants apparently no no part of it. So I think that's going to going to play into this as well. Before we dive into the second half, and we can we dive into Western policy options? I want to set that up with looking at something we've alluded to already initially, European disunity on Russia. And Thomas, you've referred to this a bit already, but I want to want to drill a little bit deeper. And American disunity on Russia, something, David, you and I have been talking about both on this program and off mic for, for, for quite, a, quite a while now. Thomas, why don't you go first? I mean, is there a chance to have a unified position in Europe on this, when you have countries like Germany that want to continue their business relationships with Russia and want to continue Nord Stream, and countries like France that want to have this special relationship with Moscow, countries like Italy that that are that are like less inclined to see what's going on in Eastern Europe as anything of a threat, where the closer you get to Russia's borders, um, the Baltic states and Poland in particular, the more the more vigilant uh, and, and skeptical leadership is. Is there is there a unity? Is there a, a, the chance to create Create unity given the differing threat perceptions and the differing interests at play here. This is constantly, has been constantly a problem since, um, basically, since the end of the Cold War. Yeah. I mean, it's taken very different forms, but I mean, uh, running, ranging from, say, calls opposition to the Baltic countries joining even mm -hmm. the European Union in, in, 90, in, the, in the first part of the 90s, to uh, any number of you know, direct sellouts. I mean, be it Schroeder, be it Pavo Lippon in Finland mm -hmm. going to work for Nord Stream 2, the former prime minister of France, Fillon, going to uh, work for a different oil company, you know, and then Austria. I mean, Austria. That, <laughs> I mean, you know, everything from Firtash to like the little known episode with Golovatov, the KGB uh, officer who who supervised the brutal murder of 13 Lithuanians, mm -hmm. who has been on a, on a red list for decades, who when he arrived in Austria, the foreign minister Spindelager made a point of releasing him to let him escape 
because they didn't want to offend the Russians. And we're dealing with a mass murderer who was convicted uh -huh. for mass murder. So, I mean, you have a lot of countries. That, I mean, I forgot to mention Silva Berlusconi, who, I mean, <laughs> was, right? So we're dealing with a, a cast of characters here who, uh, whether in office or out of office, have been um, have actually, I mean, basically they've been bought. And when you're bought, it's tough to do things in the European Union. I mean, this is what was my whole point uh, when I gave my speech on the Navalny Award, mm -hmm. which was that we will acquiesce to this kind of behavior on the part of Russia as long as we allow ourselves to be bought. I mean, being bought is part of it, but there are also people who are not bought but have since are sincerely naive about Russia, if, if, if you may. And the combination of those two things is potentially toxic, and this is by design. I mean, Putin, the one, one of the ways I've heard this described with your Schraders and others is that Putin's created a modern version of the common turn, and the leading members are like some of the leading politicians in Western Europe. And that concerns me. It concerns me more given the fact that it was historically, it has been the United States that has teamed up with the frontline states of Europe, the countries that feel this threat the most acutely, the Baltic states in Poland and Romania and others. It's been the United States that has given this push, that combined thing with the United Kingdom in there as well, kind of overcame this tendency to be a, a Putin Verstehr in, in, in Europe and for the, you know, the, despite- Well, the, I think it's, it's worse. I think it's worse, which is that it, we have just, it's just clear to see that when it comes to the um, so-called new members of NATO or European Union, even though it's been 17 years since we joined, mm -hmm. and no one was ever called a new member you know, 17 <laughs> years after joining the EU or NATO, there is this tendency to actually just disregard what is going on. I mean, the classic example was this summer with when without ever consulting with the new so-called new members, I mean, with Eastern Europe, the East, we found out about this proposal to have a meeting between Putin, uh, Merkel, and uh, Macron from a leak to the Financial Times. I mean, this is we you when you do not discuss these things. When you have, I mean, I've categorized this as anti-empiricist bias. Don't talk to me about Russia because you know what you're talking about. I mean, <laughs> This, I mean, I, the first time I saw this was a review, I think, by Mary Dayevsky of the Gulag Archipelago, say, where she took uh, Solzhenitsyn to task for saying that Lenin had invented the, the Gulag, um, saying, no, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about. It was Stalin. And you go like, wait a minute, you're correcting Alexander Solzhenitsyn <laughs> on, on the history of the gulag? And, and it's been like this constantly. I, I mean, the other, I, when we had our cyber attacks, the response of most mm -hmm. countries, with the exception of the, of the U.S., the U.K., was, oh, you're just Russophobes. Mm -hmm. which was a combination of, A, immediately dismissing us because we were East European, members of Euro of NATO, but nonetheless East European, and secondly, because they had no clue what, I mean, they didn't know what a computer was in many cases, right? So what's a cyber attack? So we're dealing with this fundamental dismissal of, of countries precisely because they are 
were at one time victims of crude behavior on the part of what is Russia today. Yeah, no, and I would I would add to that, and I've tried to, to make this point again and again and again in, in, in public every chance I get, is that you've been right every step of the way. I mean, if we had listened to Estonia after 2000, the 2007, I call it a hybrid attack because it wasn't just a cyber attack. There was actually, you know, there was a form of kinetic action on the ground there by Russian yes. citizens in the heart of the Estonian capital in conjunction with that, that, that cyber attack. If we had listened to you then, we may be in a very, very different place now. Um, David, I want to bring you in on the U.S. side of this, because what I fear right now is the United States is not speaking with a very clear voice. Um, and that doesn't really help our friends on, on, on NATO's eastern flank, you know, and, and, and the, the frontline states that – quite frankly, have known what they've been talking about through this entire uh, period. Um, we're not speaking with a clear voice for a couple of reasons, partially due to the polarization of our country at the moment. We're recording this podcast on January 6th, so I have to have to note that. But also because of sincere policy disagreements within the Biden administration, something we've discussed ad nauseum on this podcast, the, the debate between China only or the United States can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, that's the way I like to characterize the debate because I do think we have the bandwidth to deal with two adversaries, or at least the United States I grew up believing in did, and I think we still do now. How do you see this? I mean, if, if the US was speaking with a clearer voice and a stronger voice on this, we might be able to help our friends in Eastern Europe, no? Well, I agree, but let me, let me back up for a second, Brian, and say that Putin has four objectives. Um, the first is to stay in power. The second is to stay in power. The third is to stay in power. The fourth, however, is to sow divisions. And he tries to do that within Europe. He tries to do that between Europe and the United States. And then he does try to do it within the U.S. administration itself. And he has been rather successful in part because we help him. Um, think about what the White House said right after the December 7th video conference with Putin. President Biden said he was going to organize a NATO discussion with a few select members of NATO, the U.K., Germany, France, Italy. I think those are the main ones. And, and and the other NATO members were apparently not going to be any part of it. That hasn't happened. No journalist has had the memory to ask what happened to that idea that President Biden broached with Putin about having that kind of NATO discussion. And so we, to some extent, contribute to the divisions between the United States and Europe, within Europe and within our own administration. We, I think, made a major mistake, we, the United States, I think, made a major mistake in agreeing to whatever you call these dialogues, discussions, negotiations, talks coming up with Russia, three starting a US-Russia, then NATO-Russia, and then OSCE-Russia, by not insisting on any preconditions. I think it was a huge mistake to not tell Putin, you withdraw your troops fully and verifiably yep. from the border with Ukraine, and then we can sit down and talk. Instead, we are sitting down at the table with the Russians while the Russians have many guns pointed at Ukrainian heads. And that is a position of weakness to start out with, not a position of strength. I fear that the Russians believe they are winning. And whatever the ultimate goal is, not quite clear to me. I'm not sure it's clear to Putin yet either, but I think they feel they 
are winning. There are clear divisions within the Biden administration between the State Department and the National Security Council. Um, I think the National Security Council has evinced a much greater readiness and willingness to sit down and talk with the Russians than state might be yes. inclined to do. And so I, I am a little worried as we head into these discussions, but again, not to distract us into a tangent, but I do think the Kazakhstan situation is going to throw a monkey wrench into yes. some of these talks. And it'll yeah, be interesting I, to see what happens with that, including, by the way, when we come to Kazakhstan, there's the China factor that can't yep. be ignored. Yeah, no, that's going to kind of unify the both sides of this. And I would add that, David, you and Thomas made the point you just made in your the, the excellent article you both published at the end of last year, if I'm not mistaken, in Politico. Um, exactly. Anybody that hasn't read that piece, shame on you. Go read it right now. <laughs> Pause this recording and go read it. Um, Thomas, you wanted to say something? <laughs> the amount of uh, naivete that I've seen uh, extends beyond maybe just the NSC. I mean, I read uh, Secretary Blinken's statement that, well, actually control of gas lies in the hands of Germany. Yeah. With, I was like, wait a minute. I mean, who's pumping the gas? I mean, it's well, how does how does Germany control what is it control? I mean, it, 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 I mean, I, I just, we're reading these, I mean, that's, that's a 1980s Reagan era cliche that if we have, when Reagan was actually against the pipeline and Germany said, well, we have control over them. And besides, they've always honored their contracts, which has been a line all the time, even though they're not honoring their contracts as we've seen in the past year. You know, this this Pollyanna-esque hope springs eternal, um, <laughs> which is the line from Alexander Pope, and I never get tired of pointing out that that's the only version of that expression uh, that is positive. All the other ones, including the, both the Latvian and Polish national anthems, say hope dies last. Well, that is a, a good point to segue into our second segment um, on. Um, in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the West's options in the face of Russian revanchism. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Curation Center. Joining me from his snowbound farm in Southern Southern Estonia, a country I miss dearly, is former Estonian President Thomas Hendrik Ilvis, who these days serves as a visiting professor at Tartu University and a member of the Munich Security Conference's advisory board. And also joining us from the opposite of Snowbarn Farm in Southern Estonia, from sunny Miami, Florida, is David Kramer, who serves as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. These days, David is a senior fellow and lecturer at Florida International University, Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power, Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный, я уже делаю свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... С Новым годом вас, с Новым веком. 
In a phone call this week with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, U.S. President Joe Biden said Washington would, quote, respond decisively in the event of a Russian uh, reinvasion. In an earlier call with Putin, he said Russia would pay a, quote, heavy price in the event of additional aggression. The problem is Putin doesn't seem to be concerned about the or else. He doesn't seem to be concerned about the decisive response, and he doesn't seem to be concerned about the heavy price. He seems to have baked it all into the equation. He seems to think he can withstand the sanctions that are likely, even a swift, swift ban and a ban on Russian sovereign debt on secondary markets. My question is, is there an or else that will deter Putin? He has escalation dominance here, but what, if anything, can we do to change the calculus? David, I know you got a lot of thoughts on this. I actually think that there is a little more concern in the Kremlin than might be uh, manifested about the sanctions. I, I think so. that I think that phone call on December 30th with President Biden, where Ushakov and the readout later talked about possible rupture in relations, mm-hmm. reflects that they are in fact a little nervous about this. I think it could really screw up their energy exports and the ability to generate revenue from that if they were expelled from SWIFT. Um, And I think the sanctions against Putin and or I would prefer and his circle would also get their attention. I think some of the other things, and you mentioned, Brian, the article Tom and I did in Politico, I think it was in early December, we, we laid out a number of things that we should be doing, including providing the necessary military assistance Ukraine needs now, not waiting until an invasion actually happens. Um, so I, I, I do think that there is concern. However, I also think that the Russians think they know how to play us. And our, uh, we talked earlier before about these this series of talks that are coming up. Our readiness, even eagerness to sit down and talk with them, uh, I think is a signal to, to Putin and the Kremlin that, that we are not in this all that much. They, I, I give the administration credit. They have consulted, I think, with allies more arguably than any other administration has. Um, there has been a lot of back and forth. At the end of the day, however, this this phrase, nothing about you without you, is mm-hmm. going to be violated on January 9th and 10th because I'm certain that the issue of Ukraine will come up as Russians and Americans sit across the table from each other. And guess who will not be at that table when the issue of Ukraine comes up? Ukrainians. Yeah. So there's also a concern about really what the focus of these talks are, what is expected to be accomplished. The Russians keep issuing these threats and demands that they want to see results quickly. I can't imagine there will be results quickly. And if there are, I'd be quite nervous yeah. about them. The article that we reacted to in our article actually was basically saying, well, you know, we can, uh, we'll we'll make a deal with the Russians and too bad, Ukraine will have to suffer. That kind of thinking, which is um, not really part of, has not been part of the uh, (laughs) approach of the West for a long time, is uh, dangerously resurfacing and and to not to think in those terms even, that you do have a condominium with a fifth rate power I mean, really, a country that has, you know, a GDP the size of my uh, original home state of New Jersey. Uh, I mean, and smaller than the great state of Texas, I might add. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just a little weird, right? Uh, okay, I mean, granted, New Jersey doesn't have nukes yet, 
but um, but nonetheless, it's a bizarre kind of thinking that let's let's sell out a country of 40 million people to a country that has uh, a New Jersey GDP. Uh, so uh, without even uh, taking into consideration the 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 uh, rights, aspirations and uh, basically the sovereignty of a large country. And, Much larger than New Jersey. And uh, just to, to, to come to the defense of New Jersey, I'm not a native of the state, but I spent a lot of summers on the sh- at the Jersey Shore. They, they may not have nukes, but they got awesome beaches. Your point is taken, Thomas. I wanted to add also, though, just as a, as a kind of a counterpoint, a little bit of optimism into how, like where the overtime window is moving in terms of the Western response. Because, David, you can recall for years, certainly as far back as 2014, if not earlier, Folks like the three of us have been calling for things like swift bans, banning of the buying and selling of Russian sovereign debt, especially on secondary markets. The primary markets are pretty meaningless on, on this. And export controls. This is what I always used to think is my most radical proposal on this. I wrote it in a paper last year arguing for Cold War era style COCOM export controls, right, which effectively banned the sale of any tech the Soviet Union that can be used for dual that dual use potential, which is pretty much all tech, right? Now, suddenly I'm seeing, well, if I'm, I can believe the press reports and I can believe the leaks, SWIFT is on the table. Banning the buying and selling of Russian sovereign debt on secondary markets is on the table. And there was a report in Reuters last week that export controls are on the table. So we're actually moving up the, up the ladder of sanctions. I think we are on a scale of one to 10 around a two. But if we do all these things that have been floated, we're going to be up around an eight. So do we see cause for optimism here, David, despite all of this division in the European Union, division in the United States um, and everything that's going on? We seem to be the, the, the mainstream approach is becoming increasingly hawkish, no? Things are on the table. I'm just not sure when they're going to be served. You know, look, we, we've seen with Russian complicity the, the weaponization of migrants from Belarus into its neighboring states. And yes, there were sanctions imposed on Belarus, but there were no sanctions imposed on Russia for its role in that. Um, we have seen the weaponization of energy, where Russia has openly admitted that it is cut back on energy deliveries to Ukraine and to other parts of Europe. And there's been no reaction. There have been no sanctions. There's been no acknowledgement of that by the Europeans. And so I worry that uh, we may see um, a scenario where there's not a massive invasion where tanks cross the border, um, but there is more of a hybrid form, whether it's cyber or something else. And we all say, well, we're not sure where it came from. It may have been rogue actors or something like that. And so we see a hemming and hawing on the part of the West that doesn't trigger the necessary reaction. I, I would prefer, and I think Tom and I argued this in the political piece, I would prefer the imposition of sanctions now just to give the Russians a taste of what will come if they do anything further. I, I, I'm not, although I'm about to contradict what I said earlier, I do worry that within some in the Kremlin, they don't think we have the, the guts to go forward um, and to move ahead on this. I do think if they feel we do, it will hurt. But I, I'm not convinced that they are convinced that we will actually pull the trigger and, if you will, serve what's on the table. You know, when the, I mean, this is this even applies to Belarus. Uh, the primary uh, lender to Lukashenko is Raiffeisen Bank mm-hmm. in Austria. 
And when I mean, really, this is who this is the bank that that Lukashenko and his and his various state-owned companies depend upon. Austria vetoed sanctions on loans to Belarus because it would hurt their bank. Now, if that's if you take this kind of approach, it's even in the, the you know obvious egregious case of Belarus and what they were doing, then. You know, the idea of even sanctioning Russia becomes kind of dubious. And, uh, you know, I mean, as I said, Firtash still has not been extradited from Vienna, uh, even though the United States has wanted him extradited for, what, seven years, eight years now. So we're dealing with uh, basically uh, Europe, uh, where individual countries uh, looking out for their own country's interests will say to hell with it. I mean, look, look, look at how, and, and look, I, I really salute what Lithuania has done yes. uh, for a yes. number of years now, but particularly in light of the pressure they're facing from Belarus, from Russia, and from China, China. over Taiwan. Uh, but they were going around the sanctions on potash, which has caused a bit of a political scandal in Lithuania. Latvians were doing something similar. So Tom's point is absolutely right, which is even the countries that have really been outstanding in, in their support for democracy and human rights and, and, and standing up to authoritarianism, there's even some slippage in those countries too. So I worry what signals. In Estonia as well, I should add. Estonia, okay. Going back to David's point and sending a clear message here and the, the lack thereof at the moment, I, I can't help but recall a point that I believe was made at the Leonard Mary conference several years back. And Thomas, I believe you're involved in this. It was a, I, I know Edward Lucas and Ambassador Dan Freed were, were involved in this, but this talk of snap financial exercises, basically a demonstration of what the West would do in terms, in the event of an invasion, the bank accounts that would be frozen, the sanctions that would be imposed and presented as a, an exercise, hey, it's just an exercise. This isn't real, right? That's something that kind of, I, I always thought would send a clear and unambiguous signal. David, I, I, do you see any administration kind of following through on something like that? Because I always thought it was a great idea. I just remember coming up at a panel at the Leonard, Leonard Mary conference, I think it was back in 2015, 2016, but I always thought it was an awesome idea. I, I don't see the current administration doing it. Um, and I think in general, it's a good idea. Although at the same time, I would want to be a little careful about telegraphing too much. You don't telegraph um, everything. What, right. <laughs> and, and so you don't want to be too graphic about what's to come so that the, the other side can then figure out workarounds to it. So on the one hand, it can send a very useful message. On the other hand, we, we want to be careful you don't share too much. All right, we're bumping up towards the end, but before we finished, I did want to go beyond sanctions and talk about other things that we could do in the event of a Russian reinvasion of Ukraine. And we always have to catch ourselves and say reinvasion because Russia's already invaded Ukraine. But these, I mean, things that have been put on the table are additional military assistance for Ukraine, arming in the event of a, a kind of a, a guerrilla uprising after a Russian occupation, arming the Ukrainian resistance, stingers, things like this. And we have to kind of maybe go back to the Afghanistan playbook here. David, any thoughts on this? I know you're thinking about policy options all the time. 
Yeah, I, you know, your reference to reinvasion, Brian, I've noticed that the White House, including the president, have used the term further invasion. Further um, yeah. and, and, and that is a little progress uh, just to get them to use the right terminology on this, uh, because, of course, they uh, the Russians invaded in 2014. So this mm -hmm. would not be an invasion. It would be a reinvasion or a further invasion. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, building up the forces, the NATO presence uh, in countries like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, I think would be um, something we should be doing now. We have told Putin that if he does move back into Ukraine, that's what it will trigger. Why wait? And, and I, the same toward helping Ukraine defend itself, provide the necessary military. If, if we wait until the forces move across the border again, it's too late. They need the time now to train, to get the equipment properly positioned. We have some forces on the ground to train the Ukrainians, so mm. the Brits, and I think a few other NATO members do, but it's not a united NATO presence on the ground in Ukraine. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed as the NATO foreign ministers uh, gather uh, tomorrow, I think on Friday, January 7th. So we need to be uh, even though I give the odds of a reinvasion now lower than 50 percent, um, I, I think we need to prepare for that now. There's one area that I've not seen discussed, and maybe I'm, uh, I don't know, but I mean, I've no, seen no articles. But I mean, given our, that uh, what we discussed earlier, that Putin has, in fact, threatened technical military attacks, I would send over a whole bunch of people from the NSA to actually deal with these mm -hmm. issues. Uh, cyber forensics. I mean, one of the big problems with with cyber has traditionally been forensics. You don't know where it comes from, and they have this deniability. But if you have some really hot shot for, uh, cyber for, uh, forensics people there who can quickly identify where things are coming from, well, then you also have a reason to do something back. So I would say it's not just. Uh, I mean, just as I mean, as much as javelin anti tank weapons are critical for Ukraine. And I should say, I mean, they have as many as Estonia bought from the United States, like 300, which is not a lot, but but they're very good. But I'm saying, okay, I mean, ship, ship them, give them javelins, override Germany's veto of even sending NATO-owned rifles. I mean, rifles are right now under, have been vetoed by Germany in NATO. Uh, but I would send a, a major contingent of civilians from the NSA to go and uh, uh, help on cybersecurity because that's going to be those are going to be the crucial points mm -hmm. if uh, you start taking down ele the electrical grid and all these other kinds of things. And look for the vulnerabilities. Yeah, I agree with Tom, but uh, one other thing, there there are a number of military helicopters on the ground in Ukraine that were destined for Afghanistan that obviously are not going to be sent there. We, we need to release those to the mm -hmm. Ukrainians so that they could have them on the ready should they need them. And I would also add stingers to this. So Ukraine, Absolutely. Russia's going to, we got to prevent Russia from having air dominance. But the other thing, and this, I've heard this come up, that the Ukrainian armed forces are actually preparing for where this is going to go in the event of a Russian occupation of some or all of Ukraine. And they're planning on kind of breaking up into cells and leading an insurgency in the population. Um, meanwhile, it appears that the, the population is being prepared for this. There, there's talk of opening the arms depots. And I was wondering what the West, in particular, 
the United States could do to kind of prepare Ukraine in advance to fight an insurgency in the event, to make this as painful as possible and make Ukraine as indigestible as possible. Any thoughts on that from either of you? Well, there are a lot of guns on the ground in Ukraine. And from my understanding, the Ukrainian authorities have been distributing those to make an insurgency possible. And I think there's training that could be done along those lines. Um, it's, you know, the old talk about the porcupine, um, making Ukraine like a porcupine so that it's impossible for Russia to digest it. And uh, I think whatever we can do to help that is, is what we should do. Okay. For our European friends, we should also be talking uh, about the number of the number of millions of refugees that will come streaming into Europe mm -hmm. uh, in the case of an invasion. I mean, they, I mean, the problem has been in Europe that it's they forget that in fact, basically, you know, Slovakia is a neighbor, Hungary is a neighbor. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are country, Poland is a neighbor. Uh, that if you do have an invasion, you're going to also you will also have millions of people fleeing, and mm -hmm. these people will not just stay in Poland or Slovakia or Hungary. So I mean, the absolute absence of preparation for anything like this on the part of the EU, I think, is uh, really a, a big, big issue. Okay, we're bumping up against the end. Do either of you have any last thoughts before we wrap it up for the first podcast of 2022? Uh, your next podcast will be interesting to see what happens in these various talks. So. That is that that is true. That's a great way to leave it. All right, on that note, we will wrap it up. That is all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from his snowbound farm in southern Estonia has been former Estonian President Thomas Hunter Hilvis, a visiting professor at Tartu University and who serves as a member of the Munich Security Conference's advisory board. And joining us from the opposite of a snowbound farm in southern Estonia from sunny Miami, Florida, has been David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. These days, David is a senior fellow and lecturer at Florida International University's Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. Thanks to you both for an enlightening discussion to kick off the year. Thanks very much. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And I'd also like to extend a welcome to the newest member of the Power Vertical team, Zachary Smith, who handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, and if you like us, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.